Today, we are going to jump into all of Matthew chapter 2. So buckle up, because we have a lot to cover, but I'm excited. Excited that you're here this morning, excited that you are joining us as we walk through the scriptures together. Um, If you were here with us last week, you heard us start through the gospel of Matthew, and we learned that Matthew is the discipled scribe. We get this from Matthew chapter 13, verse 52, where uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a discipled scribe or a scribe who has been trained, and out from his storehouse, he brings out treasures old and new. And so the, the whole thrust of the gospel of Matthew for you and for me as Christians is to receive from Matthew, to receive from the Spirit of God, old and new treasures for us to behold. And in Matthew chapter 2, it is much of the same. On the front end of Matthew's gospel, he's going to be very explicit about doing some of these things, and he'll get less and less explicit over time. So what he's doing this morning and last week and in the next couple of weeks is he's giving us some patterns and some themes. And that's the title of our message this morning. So if you're writing notes today, we're we're talking all about pointing to the patterns. Pointing to the patterns. We learned uh, in the pattern of the genealogy that Jesus really is the son of David, for example. We believe uh, when we read of uh, the quotes in Isaiah that they will call his name Emmanuel and he will be God with us, that Jesus will save us from our sins. We saw this pattern of the divine and the human coming to be the savior of the world. Today, we're going to focus on four patterns that we find in the text of Matthew chapter 2. All of them have Old Testament significance, and all of them help us focus on how Jesus is the fulfillment of the word of God to Israel. So I'm going to repeat what I said last week, which is, if you don't have a good grasp on the Old Testament, then you're going to miss a lot of what Matthew has for you as he brings out these treasures. So hopefully, Uh, I will do a a fair job of pointing you to a lot of those treasures as well. Also, just want to tell you on the front end, um, this is kind of seeing how the sausage is made. Um, Throughout the week, I read a lot on this text. I read the text, I read the text, I read the text, I read it again, I make notes, I ask questions. But then I also try to read a lot of commentators and uh, pastors and theologians as they write about this text. And there's one guy named Douglas O'Donnell uh, who just had such a good way of structuring this text that um, I'm taking some of his structure from his sermon on Matthew chapter 2. There's, there's, I, there's, I can't think of a better way to do it. So uh, if you want to read more, I would just highly encourage you. Check out a guy named Douglas O'Donnell. He is amazing. Um, so we'll need to jump back and forth a few times between the Old and New Testament this morning, but because I want you to see how all of this connects. Matthew isn't just pulling things out of thin air and saying, wow, isn't this crazy? Jesus is like this. No, he's He's pointing to things that make sense, and he wants us to see these connections so that as we get farther along in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll start to have this understanding and this language that is familiar to us when we see these patterns develop more and more. Again, just as I said last week, I'll say this week, and it's the truth through all the Bible, Jesus Christ is the key. He's the key that unlocks all of these treasures for us to behold. So let's read the first section from Matthew chapter 2. And dig in. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll go through verse 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled 
and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray before we go any further. O God in heaven, we are grateful for your word. It is a storehouse of rich treasures, and we pray that by the power of your spirit, you will open our eyes so that we might see and behold these treasures. Lord, I pray that as we think about these patterns that are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, that our chief aim this morning will not be to grow in knowledge, Our chief aim this morning will not be to have clever things to say. No, our our chief aim, Lord, we pray, is to be in awe of you. Lord, you are awesome, and you are worthy of glory. You are worthy of worship, just as we've read. Worship from all the nations. Worship from us, your people. So we pray that you might cultivate in our hearts a desire ever stronger to worship you in spirit and truth. Help us to understand your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in this text, we see uh, two things that I want to point out to you. One of them very quickly, and that's just what we would want to call immediate fulfillment. Okay, immediate fulfillment. So maybe you're writing this down. There are other ways to say this, but the way I'm saying it this morning is just immediate fulfillment. And that is all throughout the Gospels and all throughout the New Testament, we see different ways in which Jesus is the immediate or direct fulfillment of something that was promised in the Old Testament. So we see in this text, as the wise men come to King Herod, and Herod asks the chief priests and scribes, where will the Christ be born? And they say, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Well, where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. So that's a direct fulfillment or an immediate fulfillment. And so uh, all throughout the Gospels and all throughout the New Testament, we see over and over these immediate fulfillments. Oftentimes, they're very quick to spot. Uh, They're even referenced here, like here's the Old Testament prophecy Here's what we know to be true. And so we want to understand those things because it gives us something to hold on to as far as how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But our focus this morning is not on immediate fulfillments, but patterns. These patterns of fulfillment that we see in the life and work of Jesus. And so if you're taking notes this morning in verses 1 through 12, we're going to see the pattern of worship. The pattern of worship. All throughout the Old Testament, there is only one person, there's only one being worthy of worship, and it's the Lord. God alone is worthy of worship. Not even the angels are worthy of worship. And all throughout the Gospels, and specifically in this text, we start to see this pattern unfold that there is someone on the earth who is now worthy of worship. Matthew begins this chapter with a well-known story to many of us. There's 
Three wise men, or magi, as the New Testament calls them, who come from the east, whether it's Persia or Babylon, we're not exactly sure. But they're looking for the king of the Jews. They're looking for the king of the Jews. And ultimately, they find him, they give him royal gifts, and they worship him, and then they go home. <laughs> and if you heard that story as a child, or maybe you read it during Christmas time, that's probably all that you really focused on in that story. The three wise men come, they worship the baby Jesus, they give gifts. Fun fact, he's probably not in the barn right now, right? In his home, it says the wise men found him. So this is probably anywhere from six to 18 months after the birth of Jesus, the wise men have come to worship him. So if you have a nativity at home, which I usually put out a nativity at Christmas time, we always put the wise men like far away to show like they're, they're coming, right? They're on the way. They're just not here yet, right? So if your family uses a nativity and has wise men there, don't like throw them away and be like, Aaron said they're not there. Um, it's okay. It's okay. But there's a lot more going on in this passage. And so I want to uh, dive into that with you this morning. First, we need to get a quick lay of the land. The wise men are coming to worship the king of the Jews. And who do they go to ask where the king of the Jews is? They go to Jerusalem and ask the king of the Jews, <laughs> Right? They ask Herod, who is the king in Judea. He is technically the king of the Jews, but he was a false king. Herod the Great was propped up by the Roman Empire. He was an Idumean, meaning he was not uh, an actual Israelite. He was not in the line of David. Herod was a ruthless king who wanted power and influence more than anything else. So for wise men to come and ask where the real king of the Jews would be would have been a disastrous insult and the cause of much confusion and fear for Herod. What do these Gentiles from the east know that we don't? Which is why if you read in chapter 2 verse 3, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Right? If you would think like they're, they're waiting for the Messiah, they're waiting for the Christ, and now these wise men are saying, hey, the Christ is here, where is he? You would think that they would be excited. You would think that they would be overjoyed, but instead it says that they're troubled. Here's the first pattern that Matthew lays out for us. We are always worshiping something or someone, and it is often the wrong thing. <laughs> We're always worshiping someone or something, and it's often the wrong thing. There's a man named uh, Harold Best who has a really famous quote that says, you and I don't begin worship and stop worship. We aim it. In other words, we're always worshiping. The question is not whether or not we're worshiping. The question is, the question is where is our worship aimed? What is the object of our worship at this time? Notice, uh, the troubled uh, Jerusalem and Herod uh, send out the wise men to go find the Christ, to go find this king so that we may come and worship him. And yet their desire is not really for worship. Their desire is to keep him from receiving worship. As we'll read in just a few verses, their desire was not to worship, but to destroy. It wasn't to give honor, it was to kill. So the wise men leave, and in verse 10, actually let's say in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, what did they do? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, I'm not really sure, I'm not a Greek scholar, 
but I'm not sure how much more joyful you can get, right? It's not just that they rejoiced. It's not just that they rejoiced with, with joy. It's that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, this is, this is life-altering joy that the wise men are experiencing because they're following after the Christ. They're following after this this supernatural thing that's leading them to the King of Kings, the King of the Jews. Students, our joy is rooted in the object of our worship. As the wise men were going to worship Jesus, as the wise men were going to worship the King of the Jews, the Christ, the Messiah, their hearts were filled with joy. As Herod and the leaders in Jerusalem realized that there was a threat to the influence and power and worship that they received, their hearts were filled with trouble. This is a pattern proven throughout the Old Testament. From the fall in Genesis 3 to the idol worship in the wilderness, to the worship of false gods in Israel up until their exile, joy is always extinguished when the object of our worship is wrong. Jesus is worthy of our efforts, our time, our treasures, just as we've seen the wise men give. And worshiping Jesus may lead to danger, just like these wise men who were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. It may lead to danger, but it also leads to exceeding joy. One other thing we see here that we'll pick up on throughout the chapter, the wise men are being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, not to let Herod know where Jesus is. What we're going to see throughout this chapter is that God is providentially caring for his son. God is supernaturally behind the scenes by workings of his providence through dreams and other ways, caring for, providing for, protecting his son. He warns the wise men not to return to Herod in a dream, so they go separate way. So the first thing we see is this pattern of worship that will continue out throughout Jesus' life and ministry. Number two, let's keep reading. Uh, Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So if the first 12 verses are all about the pattern of worship, what we see in the next few verses, number two, is the pattern of the exodus. The pattern of the exodus. There's another dream this time. It's an angel of the Lord, just like in chapter one, speaking to Joseph and leading him to go somewhere, to do something, specifically to flee to Egypt and escape the danger that's coming. So Joseph, the righteous man, the son of David, takes Mary and Jesus and heads for Egypt to escape this coming destruction. Matthew tells us that the family remains in Egypt away from their home until the death of Herod. And it was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet, specifically the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. So what is, what is Matthew doing? Why is this prophecy in Hosea connecting to Jesus? We continue to see the providence of God yet again in caring for and providing for his son. But what is Matthew trying to show us? The key is that prophecy from Hosea. 
The prophet is speaking in Hosea about Israel's journey from Canaan in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Egypt during the time of famine when Joseph, the son of Jacob, was providentially set up there as a ruler to provide safety and food and life for a nation of God's chosen people that would surely have died. 400 years later, after Israel leaves the promised land to go to Egypt to find life and safety, they find themselves enslaved to Egypt, and Moses, led by God, leads Israel out of slavery and back into the promised land. So so listen to John Stott make the connections here and later on in the story. Listen to what he says. He says, As Israel was oppressed in Egypt under the despotic rule of Pharaoh, so the infant Jesus became a refugee in Egypt under the despotic rule of Herod. As Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus will pass through the waters of John's baptism in the River Jordan. As Israel was tested in the wilderness of sin for 40 years, so Jesus was tested in the wilderness of Judea for 40 days. As Moses from Mount Sinai gave Israel the law, so Jesus from the Mount of Beatitudes gave his disciples the true interpretation and amplification of the law. In other words, now that we see the Christ, now that we see Jesus, one of the patterns that we'll start to connect is this. When you think of the Exodus, think of Jesus. When you think of the Exodus, think of Jesus. When we think of Israel as being God's son in Hosea chapter 11, we think of Jesus as the son of God here in Matthew chapter 2, and specifically next week in Matthew chapter 3. And the Exodus story ends with God's people in the promised land through the leadership of Joshua. And in bigger and better ways, Jesus, who we learned last week, the greater Joshua, will lead his people out of the land of slavery and oppression because of their sin and into the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. All that, though, is seen right here in Matthew chapter 2 as just a kernel or a seed of something that's going to grow and ultimately blossom. But the pattern is set. So we see in Christ, we see in Matthew chapter 2, this pattern of worship that here is this this baby boy who is nonetheless worthy of worship because he is the king of the Jews. And we see Jesus' life as the fulfillment of the pattern of the Exodus that we see in the book of Exodus. We keep going. So let's pick up in verse 16. Two more patterns to witness. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. In this third section, we see the pattern of the exile. Number three, the pattern of the exile. History calls this event the massacre of the innocents. The massacre of the innocents. 
Herod, out of his fury and paranoia and pride, sends people to Bethlehem to kill all of the male children two years old and under. It's a painful, gut-wrenching reminder. Don't miss this. That pride and sin lead to devastation, not just of yourself, but of others. Your pride and your sin, as we see in Herod, doesn't just terminate in your destruction. Your pride and your sin, like a wildfire, shoots out in ways that you do not expect. And perhaps you don't plan for. I don't think Herod, a week before, was thinking, I think I'm going to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Like, that's not on his radar. But because of his fury, because of his pride, because of his sin, it led him to do something unspeakable. This is probably quick. Bethlehem is only five miles away from Judea. So as soon as Herod realized that the wise men weren't coming back, he became furious, the text tells us, and quickly the tragedy strikes this small village. And then we read this sorrowful quotation from Jeremiah 31 of weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And it makes sense to us as we think about the exiles, we think about Jeremiah lamenting to Israel that they are becoming no more because of their sin. Their sin and their pride and their false worship is creating this utter devastation that's leading them out into exile in places they never thought they would be. Rachel, the wife of Jacob in the book of Genesis and the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, died during the birth of Benjamin. She died in childbirth. And so Jewish culture reveres her as the matriarch of Israel, the mother of Israel in many ways, and, and connects her often with the idea of sorrow. So when we hear Rachel weeping for her children, we know what they mean. She's also believed to be buried in Ramah, which some, scholar thinks, some scholars think is right near Bethlehem, just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. Here in Jeremiah 31, as, he's, as the prophet speaking in the majority of his whole book in Jeremiah, as well in his smaller work, Lamentations, Jeremiah is not a hopeful, happy book. Jeremiah is a book full of warning and lament and sorrow and frustration and exile. Judgment on the people of God. In a very real sense, because of the exile, the people of God and Israel were no more. They were scattered, defeated, broken. Their state is no longer together. Their state is scattered in exile. And we may think if we just read through this chapter quickly that what Matthew is trying to do is he's trying to clue us into this prophecy to connect the weeping of Bethlehem's mothers to the weeping of those in exile. And that's not wrong, but it's incomplete. The tears that began to flow in Jeremiah 31 because of the exile are reaching their end right here. So hold your place and find Jeremiah 31. Find Jeremiah 31. 
We'll start in verse 15. Jeremiah 31, verse 15. In the midst of all of this sorrow and desperation and lament and warning and rebuke, we read in verse 15 of Jeremiah 31, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That's exactly what we just read in Matthew chapter 2. But look at the very next verse. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Right here is where I believe Matthew is trying to lead us to. The weeping that began with the exile of Israel finds its completion and fulfillment not in the death of the boys of Bethlehem, but in the sparing of one baby boy who will lead his people out of exile once and for all. If you flip over just a couple of verses in Jeremiah 31, you have one of the most wonderful promises in verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer each one uh, shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The exile is over. And what Matthew is cluing his readers into is this weeping that we have endured for hundreds of years through the escape of Jesus, fulfilled in this massacre of the innocents, should remind us that our time in exile is done. And the good news of the gospel is the church of Jesus Christ is filled with sons and daughters of God who know the Lord. We believe at Lakeview Baptist Church in what we call a believer's church. Right? The only way you become a member of this church is by professing faith in Christ as your Lord. So Lakeview Baptist Church, this family of faith is a family of people who know the Lord. They don't need to be taught to know him because they already know him. They're, his law, his word has been written on each of our hearts. This new covenant that is coming in Jesus is being fulfilled and promised and brought into reality right here. Jesus will return from his exile out of Egypt to reign as the king of kings, leading all of his people into their own country. Our country is not in between Canada and Mexico. Our country is not on the Western Hemisphere. Our country is a heavenly kingdom. And one day, we will no longer be strangers and aliens in a land that is not our home. If you were with us this summer, going through 1 Peter, you know that that's abundantly clear. 
One day, this king, this Jesus, this leader who brings us out of the exile will restore all things to himself and bring us all the way home with him into a new creation. So when you feel lost and when you feel alone and when you feel overcome with grief and when you find yourself weeping over the realities of sin in this world, when you feel like an exile, when you feel like this is not home, know that the one who promises to bring you home is also the one who promises to stop all of the weeping, to wipe away every tear from every eye. This is the pattern of the exile that we'll see over and over throughout this gospel. Okay, last thing. We need to land the plane. Fourth pattern. Pick up in verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Fourth pattern this morning for you and me as we finish up Matthew chapter 2 is the pattern of the king. The pattern of the king. Now, you're going to have to hang with me on this. Up until this point, you've heard it. I'm I'm sure you've caught on to it in Matthew 1 and in Matthew 2 over and over and over and over again. Matthew has been saying, this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Right? And so over and over, Matthew is getting you used to, accustomed to this rhythm that when we look at Jesus, we see the prophets being fulfilled. In Jesus, we see these patterns of worship in, of the exodus and of the exile just in this chapter. And all of these threads are being woven together into this one man. We have one more pattern, this pattern of the king. So we see another dream, another command, another move. Joseph leads his family back to Egypt, or back from Egypt rather, into Israel. But Herod had a son named Archelaus who was just as ruthless as his dad, who is now ruling in Israel. So in yet another dream, see it again, over and over and over. God is providentially caring for his son. Quick side note. Dreams are really personal. Like, you don't share dreams. I mean, you can tell somebody that you had a dream, but like, it's not inception, right? Like, we don't connect ourselves to a machine and have a dream together. So nobody really understands in the moment what's going on except Joseph. Joseph is the one who's receiving these dreams, and Mary just has to hear, the Lord has told me that we need to go back to Israel. All right. So so, so don't miss this point. It may regularly, even often in this season of life, feel like God is not providentially caring for you, but you don't see the whole story, and you don't know all that God is doing. Uh, John Piper once said, uh, God is regularly doing upwards of 10,000 things to sanctify you and to bring you into his presence one day for eternity, and you may be aware of one of them. So don't, for a moment, believe the doubts of your heart and believe the lies of the enemy that says the reason why you're in the place that you're in is because God doesn't care for you. 
These dreams are a clear reminder that he does. As he cares for his son, he cares for his sons and his daughters. All right, so uh, Archelaus, bad guy. So Joseph is commanded not to go straight to uh, Bethlehem, but to Nazareth, a town in a section of Israel called Galilee. And Galilee is important. It's interesting. It's in the northern part of Israel, now near the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. It's a beautiful place. But what's interesting about Galilee is that it's a mixed region. Both Jews and Gentiles lived here. And now we get this final word from the prophets that he, that is whoever this person is that we now see as Jesus, Jesus would be a Nazarene. So Jesus is being led out of exile, out of Egypt, the fulfillment of this new exodus into a land within the nation of Israel that is mixed, Jews and Gentiles. And he's going to be raised in that land in the city of Nazareth. And that is somehow a fulfillment of the prophets. Here's the problem. You can read the Old Testament and you will not find the word Nazareth there. That city is not mentioned. So what's going on? Is Matthew just making stuff up? What's he alluding to? What is this? What are these? What are these? What are these prophets? And what, what, are, what is he fulfilling? What's going on? Well, first we need to see that the language here is different. Matthew has trained us to see something very specific. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Bah. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Done. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Look again at Matthew chapter two, verse twenty-three. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew isn't thinking of any specific prophet. He isn't thinking of any specific prophecy. Instead, he is thinking about the words of the prophets, this whole canon that a theme can be brought out from. It seems that Matthew is keying into a kind of theme or pattern that can be traced throughout the scriptures. And we see here two big ideas in the prophets that seemingly don't add up. We see, on the one hand, that the son of David will be this king of the Jews forever. That Israel will be this eternal kingdom. And yet, on the other hand, we see in the prophets that Gentiles will be able to be a part of God's people under this king. So we have this these prophecies and these themes that Israel will be this forever kingdom, that the king of Israel, the son of David, will rule over the earth. And yet we see this other theme that Gentiles, those who are not Jews, will be brought into this people and serve under this king. So how do we make sense of these things? How do we put them together? Here's where it gets good. In Galilee, the land of both the Jews and the Gentiles, Jesus finds himself in Nazareth. Now, you just have to flip over one more time to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I told you we'd be going back and forth a couple of times. Isaiah chapter 11. As you're finding Isaiah chapter 11, we're going to read verse 1 in just a moment, but just know this verse has stumped a lot of people throughout history. And so what I'm about to say, what I'm about to argue for, I just want to go ahead and just say, levels of conviction, we need to be clear. This is not as close-handed as like Jesus is God, all right? But I think there's a strong consensus of scholars who use 
what I'm about to say as a, as a good way to land the plane when it comes to this text. That Matthew is cluing us in, not to just patterns of specific fulfillment, but also being able to bring out these themes that we see. So, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, Spirit of counsel and might, Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, on and on we can go. This is clearly a prophecy pointing us forward to the Son of David, the Messiah, the King of kings, the righteous reign of the branch is what my Bible says as the subheading. And that word branch is the Hebrew word nezer. And most scholars believe that pretty soon after this chapter, this prophecy was given, the town of Nazareth, this is according to Michael Wilkins, the town of Nazareth was likely named after this promise. It was originally settled by a remnant of Israel who returned from the exile, who were from David's line, and who thus consciously gave their new settlement a messianic name, the town of the branch. Jesus is the branch. He is the Nazarene. This providentially protected baby boy. The unlikely king who will rule over both Jews and Gentiles in his cosmic kingdom is seen in this kernel right here in the town of Nazareth. In the land of Judea, in the land of Galilee. So we end where we began. This Jesus is worthy of worship. He is the King of kings, and he invites you and me to leave our sin, leave our exile, and come and find rest in his kingdom. The life of rejoicing with exceedingly great joy is there for all of us, Jew and Gentile, who will fall before this Jesus and trust in him. The branch of David is reigning now. And the one who Matthew tells us who will shepherd his people Israel is calling all of us to come into his fold, to submit to his rule, and to find joy in his love. Let me pray for you. God in heaven, we are grateful for your grace. And we are astounded as we see all of the things that Matthew is doing by the inspiration of your spirit to weave all of these threads together so that when we see Jesus we unlock all of the treasures of the Old Testament. God, who would have thought? I mean, just as some of the disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Lord, you change our expectations. You you lead us not by our own expectations, but by your promise that the branch from the stump of Jesse will reign forever. The Spirit of of the Lord will be upon him. And as we look forward to next week in Matthew chapter 3, when we see the Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. God, this this is your story. This is your revelation. And we receive it with awe. That this God, this God would draw us to come and find rest for our souls in his reign and his rule. 
that we can fall down just like the wise men from the east and worship him, to fall before him, to give him our gifts, to, to, to find him, to seek him, and to receive the promise that if you seek him, you will find him. So Lord, I pray that for our students. I pray that for our leaders as we spend some time discussing this. Would we be stunned afresh at Jesus? You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of glory. You're worthy of our whole lives. We pray that you would guide our conversations now in your name. Amen.